Future Sense is a podcast edited from the radio show of the same name, broadcast on Bay FM in Byron Bay, Australia at bayfm.org. Hosted by Nick Jeans and well-known international futurist Steve McDonald, Future Sense provides a fresh, deep analysis of global trends and emergent technologies. How can we identify the layers of growth, personally, socially, and globally? What are the signs missed, the truths being denied? Science, history, politics, psychology, ancient civilizations, alien contact, the new psychedelic revolution, cryptocurrency, and other disruptive and distributed technologies, and much more. This is Future Sense. You're tuned to Future Sense here on BFM. It's 9.18 on this November the 11th on Remembrance Day and remembering today, well, you know, how we deal with um, the, the many issues that we have and here we're faced with these fires at the moment and we're faced also with uh, the questions of leadership with regard to issues such as these kind of uh, peak events, so to speak, on the planet and we're suffering from now. And we only have to look around, I guess, from our um, arguably more progressive uh, place, uh, green, uh, layer six in Claire W. Graves's configuration of what is actually effective leadership now because clearly much of our leadership up to this point and still has been sadly lacking, or has it? And we'll get comment, of course, from, from Steve about these things. But uh, you just have to look around the world now at uh, some of the leaders we have. Uh, Mr. Trump, clearly, uh, on one hand, we've got uh, we've got the Chinese leadership in regards to Hong Kong. We've got the Russian leadership. We've got Boris Johnson in the UK and the whole Brexit debacle. We've got people like Bolsonaro in Brazil destroying half of the Brazilian rainforests. And we have our own Scott Morrison and his government here, the coalition government, all of which, to, to my thinking, uh, lacking seriously in, in uh, forward thinking and progressive leadership, but perhaps not. Are they serving a purpose and are they clearly expressing different layers or, or stages of, uh, of evolution and the, the perspective which, uh, which informs leadership on those different le- layers and levels and what is happening with that and how do we move forward to a, a more comprehensive, forward thinking, longer term leadership on this planet? Goodness me, what a lot of questions. I know, too many questions, but you know, you can cope. Look, you've just come back from up north. You've, you've been with your mob. You've got answers in the dream time or beyond. I have had a, a very busy weekend, so I, yes. I may be a little slow to respond to questions this morning. I, I spent 10 hours on the road just getting back home. Yeah, we should, just, uh, we should mention a bit about that yeah, first. Yeah, let's, it's also about leadership in a different way too. It is, my, yeah. very, very much so. It was yeah. a very moving uh, and important weekend for me. So... Um, <laughs> On my dad's side of the family, through his mother, we've long suspected an indigenous link, and it, it kind of was more or less obvious in the appearance of some of the, the family members. Um, but we had no information about where the link was and who we were related to and those mm. sorts of things. And it was only really in 2017 when my cousin, uh, Melissa, who did a lot of work researching family history, uh, turned up a photograph of my great-great-grandmother. And uh, she was very, very clearly uh, an Australian Aboriginal lady. And um, only really within the last month or two, uh, we've actually found a family member in uh, Gladstone Mm. in Queensland, which Mm. is around about uh, eight or nine hours drive from where we are now. Um, and uh, I had the opportunity to go up there with my cousin Melissa and b- both of us were meeting uh, Auntie Jackie, our, our newly found family member for the first time and uh, she turned out to be the matriarch of the Gurung Gurung mob up mm. there, um, which was amazing and, and uh, it was 
unexpectedly important for them to discover us because we were were really uh, representing one third of their family. Uh, that which they, had been sort of disappeared. Which had disappeared yeah. through my, my great-grandmother had kind of dropped off the radar mm. and then they'd lost track of the family from there on and, and, and we'd been kind of unknown, I guess. I was trying to figure out how long, probably about for the last maybe 60 or 70 years, you know, mm, there was well. no no knowledge of, of my line of the family. And mm. so it was quite important for them to discover us, you know, just as important as it was for us to discover them. And mm. so we had a, a wonderful gathering up there, uh, barbecue on the Saturday afternoon and and uh, met a whole bunch of relatives that I never knew I had. Well, you've actually got possibly thousands of cousins. You know, without a doubt. All without a doubt. It, what's interesting is all the places that I've lived, you know, through, during yeah. my uh, adult career, uh, adult life rather, in Queensland in particular, like Townsville, Mackay, I actually lived in Gladstone for a year. I've got lots of relatives in all of those places and didn't know about it. Mm. So, so, yeah, very, very, very interesting. And, and just to have some concrete knowledge around that Indigenous link and, and mm. you know, it's it's just a, a huge learning curve, as you can imagine, for mm. me, uh, learning about um, that part of, of my origins and, and the culture and, you know, meeting all these people. and Some of which is also from the Pacific because Jackie, as I, as I noted when you sent a photo through, is uh, looks quite uh, South Pacific and, in fact, is um, some heritage in Vanuatu, so you've got that other connection too. I know that's not your, obviously not your branch of the family, but nevertheless. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. I think that... I think that's through her mother, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So extraordinary, and just to, to I guess that's very common in North Queensland, that that long-term interaction with the South Sea Islanders. Yeah, well, they're, Torres they're Strait a, and beyond. a lot of them were brought in for brought working in. on the cane farms and, and those sorts of things. Yes, yeah, some, some illegally and uh, by force, actually, mm. yeah. Yeah. And, of course, also I should mention, uh, interesting to comment too, because you said to me this morning that many of them are quite um, Christian. They're quite they're, they're Jesus, Jesus-loving Jesus people. Yes. That's not a criticism. It's just kind of how it worked for many indigenous communities. The the, uh, the proselytization of the Christian missionaries did work because it offered something to some of these people and still. Yeah, not only that, but, of course, I think for many of them it was uh, it was forced upon them. So, yeah, uh, you know, as, as the country was colonised, they were taken off their land and, and put into the care of churches in uh, religious missions. Um, and, of course, our mutual friend, uh, Wayne. Wayne, Wayne Armitage, uh, God bless him, yes. Uh, uh, he passed away mm. recently. Uh, was telling us stories about his Indigenous family and particularly connections uh, up in the far north of Queensland, where uh, one of the one of the people who became his his tribal father and took him through law up there uh, was, I think, one of very few that managed not to to get taken mm. into the mission and would, and remain living in the wild, as, as he said. Peter Costello, right? yeah, 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 different yeah. Peter Costello folks yeah. to the uh, the other one, the politician. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, very interesting part of their history. Mm. And, and uh, you know, I was sitting talking with Auntie Jackie uh, yesterday morning about um, the fact that it's quite likely that many many Australians probably have Aboriginal blood in their line and don't know about it because, you know, if you like reading about the history of early settlement and mostly men going out yes. pioneering, you know, farms and those sorts of things and, uh, yeah. and interacting with the local Aboriginal communities, uh, I think there was a, a there's a, probably a lot of um, Aboriginal heritage 
in Australia that hasn't been recognised, acknowledged, or, or, or just isn't known about. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you can text in, of course, on our text line for anything regarding today's show, anything you'd like to bring attention to, 043734111. We always enjoy your texts. Yeah, and, in, and uh, for those who might be listening to the podcast yeah. later, we're in the middle of a, a bit of a exactly. fire emergency in this area at the moment. Uh, the state where we live in New South Wales here in Australia had, I think, 150 odd houses destroyed yes. over the last day or two uh, in wildfires and uh, and right here I've got a, a fire at the moment about five kilometres away from mm. my house about ten kilometres uh, away from mine there are people in our local area here who are evacuating mm. and uh, of course lots of uh, amazing heroic volunteer firefighters out there uh, doing their job and our, um, our yes. thanks goes out to them so uh, listeners this morning who are, who are listening live might also like to text in any current news about fires that they have as well. Absolutely, and as I've already said, there is the community meeting this morning regarding the bushfires in uh, the Mullum Memorial Hall at 11 o'clock, which is, of course, a moment of remembrance uh, for Armistice Day. Um, we, of course, base a lot of what we talk about here on Claire W. Graves' work, and uh, we're going to look a little bit at these styles uh, of leadership. And to start with, I thought it was very interesting because one of Graves's key areas of research was to ask people in his longitudinal study in, in that era of 1,065 people what they thought was the mature adult personality in operation, which seemed to me that if you're going to have leadership, you're going to have to have a mature adult, however you configure that. Well, uh, you'd like to have <laughs> well, you'd one. You'd like to have one. We, we, we yes, don't always we, end up with no, that, No, I wasn't saying that we actually had one, <laughs> but you would think that that would be the, the choice, and uh, as as is beginning to be configured by many people, I think, in, in the world, and our, particularly our democratic societies why aren't there parameters uh, for standing for office you can't just be anybody uh, and just like the um, well the obvious examples of the Pauline Hansons of the world for example in, in my opinion um, standing because they want to but we need actually people who have skills in the necessary direction to lead and to uh, to fashion strategic uh, forward thinking far enough ahead to really deal with the issues that we have I passed a big billboard uh, on the way back from Gladstone with Pauline Hanson's face on it, big smiling face, and, and the words written on it were, I've got the guts to say what you're thinking. <laughs> which, which, of course, is actually true. I mean, that's true. She does do exactly that. The problem is that uh, I guess what many people are thinking perhaps yeah. uh, needs to um, open up into a, a broader perspective somehow. Yes, but we can't tell you what to think. Got the guts, but perhaps not uh, the intelligence to understand the implications of what exactly. she says. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. going going back uh, in our history, because clearly on exactly what you just said there, a lot of our leadership styles currently in this country, in many of our Western countries, seem to have regressed from perhaps a slightly more enlightened uh, leadership. Let's take a look at this country. You, you, one would argue that back in the 70s, for example, and even the 80s with Hawke and Keating, but I'm, I'd like to go back to Malcolm Fraser and Gough with them, a couple of very fine men who actually had uh, statesmanship, uh, who cared, it would seem. Uh, for example, Fraser, Malcolm Fraser, famous opened up to Vietnamese um, uh, migration to this to this country after the Vietnam War. Yeah. That was very successful overall. Yeah. Um, we had a much more, you know, uh, conciliatory and uh, 
cooperative style of leadership in this country, and I think that's probably true for most countries in, in the d- democratic world, that seems to have shifted or regressed somewhat backwards. Yeah, it? Or, yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and Whitlam, of course, famously pioneered Indigenous land rights. Exactly. Uh, recognition here in Australia. Precisely. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, I, I just want to, just a, mm. a quick comment uh, on that uh, ad- mature adult yes. uh, question of Graves. Is I, I just wanted to point out how far ahead of his time he was in terms of his research you know from from a scientific point mm. of view because most scientists come up with a hypothesis in other words that you know a statement uh, explaining how they think the facts are and then they seek out to prove the hypothesis and but graves didn't do that you know he, he started with an open question well, what is the nature of a psychological mature adult mm. and and that I think that's a sign of, of uh, you know quite advanced thinking that he just admitted straight up front that you know I don't know but I'm going to gather some data and mm. see what the data says I think it's incredible when I first came across Graves' work through you a couple of years ago uh, those kind of overarching uh, in, uh, positions of inquiry what is the mature adult just immediately just stunned me that that yeah. question is not asked immediately make complete sense to me and I'm yeah. sure to many people but it's just not what how we have configured things how we've thought up to now and the really interesting thing is that when he gathered his data and, and analyzed it together with a team of, of peers mm. who worked on it as well he came to the conclusion that there really isn't such a thing as a mature adult that it's a never-ending quest in never-ending his own quest, words yeah. that we're always growing always expanding uh, in response to the complexity of our life conditions mm. so very very interesting and of course he was a contemporary of abraham maslow who's a very famous maslow Maslow's uh, hierarchy uh, and Graves's model basically inverted Maslow's pyramid uh, because Maslow actually believed that there was a there was an end point. A pinnacle, that's There's right. There's a pinnacle, yeah. and we would reach that pinnacle. But uh, inverting that, uh, as you're saying, Graves said, no, it's actually an open-ended open quest, ended. and it makes yeah. it kind of exciting. And again, when I first started to get into this work, that that was a great relief that we weren't trying to get somewhere in particular. Exactly. That, yeah. Exactly. And of course, if if there was a pinnacle, what happens when you get there? Yeah, exactly <laughs> right. Nothing left to do. Right? I'm on the top of the mountain now. I've just got to come down again, or I've got to learn to fly, perhaps. But yeah. <laughs> Tricky stuff, <laughs> and and yeah. So uh, back to your question about mm. contemporary leadership and and politics, yeah. and it seems that our political systems at the moment are are really lagging behind in development. So if, you know, if we look at other parts of life, mm. such as business, for example, mm. uh, that display relatively leading edge values and approaches our political systems have or at least right at this moment are very much lagging and of course we're in this uh, in between space transitioning from the the fifth layer in graves's model which is the modern scientific industrial way of being human to what's next and we're kind of hard, we're, we're, we're moving towards the middle of that uh, transition process and so the old stuff doesn't seem to work anymore and that's mm. what's pushing us along but the new stuff isn't quite clear yet for many many people so it is a, an interesting time and typically at this stage of the change process people look backwards on a regressive value search trying to find some values from the past that will fit better than the way that we've been doing things because we can't you know by definition we can't see into the future and they do that because 
things are too uncertain, too are, difficult, too uh, unpredictable. Yeah, things aren't working so well. They so aren't so must, working so well. Yeah, we're, trying, we're, we're reaching back into our old toolbox to mm. see, you know, which one of these things is going to fix the problems. Mm. And, uh, and consequently, we're ending up with leaders who are displaying regressive values yeah. as a result, and particularly... You know, the, the sort of first step backwards from scientific industrial is back to kind of agricultural authoritarian, where you get the very, very clear distinction between left and right, and only one of those is correct. So um, it, it leads to a, a kind of extremist outlook on things, uh, where they're all sure everything's uh, dumbed down to black and white, and we lose all those shades of grey uh, that we normally have in a, in a rich world. Uh, and then even further back, uh, some we see some countries going you know further back to the third layer, which is an egocentric, um, very uh, uncaring because it doesn't have the capacity to actually understand its the impact of its behaviours on others. So it you know it's not uncaring because it chooses to be uncaring. It's uncaring because the capacity just isn't there. And that's such an uh, such an important point with Graves' work, isn't it? It is. To, yeah. to look at the capacity and not to, to resist the temptation to easily judge another, yeah. but yeah. rather see this is the capacity that they have at this layer and how can we manage that? How can we find the right expression of that that fits into the whole expression? Yeah, so at that third layer we get politicians who are really just looking after themselves and mm. they're just in it for the for the personal benefit mm. and, uh, and, and really don't care what the consequences are of their actions. You know? Or on a country level, I guess you could argue that China is very much in that... But part at least somewhat with regards to its repression of uh, Hong Kong or its attempted oppression and the and the, the Wiggins, for example? Uh, no, I, I look, I okay. disagree because mm -hmm. if China was operating from that third layer, we would see uh, violence from the Chinese government forces and we're not, we haven't not been yet. seeing that, you know, their restraint has been quite extraordinary actually mm -hmm. and that, that is at very at the very least uh, fourth layer authoritarianism where they they're thinking about the cause and effect you know so they're thinking mm. about okay if we okay. come down hard then it's going to make things worse and mm. that's not good for anybody um, so there's a there's definitely an altruistic flavour to the Chinese response there um, I'm seeing it's it's not a blatant you know uh, egocentric kind of response at mm. all yeah mm. well let's hope it doesn't devolve even further like that let's, I mean, yeah let's hope not but again it's a complex situation mm. and uh, like I've said on the show before if uh, third parties aren't involved in in that uh, goings on in Hong Kong trying to stir up trouble for China then I would eat my hat yeah <laughs> true I mean, what do you think about someone like, before we take a break about Bolsonaro in Brazil uh, because uh, obviously modelled on the Trumpian sort of uh, manner of governance and election, electability, the whole fake news thing, and his absolute disregard, for example, for the, the, the natural environment, particularly with regards to the Amazon. Um, you know, this is kind of, to me, this is a kind of violence. It's not just uh, layer four. It is a, a sort of violence upon the landscape, upon it is, the, the yeah. other creatures and beings of, on the planet. And I, look, I, you know, I haven't had time to look at him in any mm. detail or analyse his language, so I really can't yeah. make an assessment of him. But, I mean, the, just looking at the consequences which have been reported in the news, yeah. you know, there's, a, there's an absence of uh, cause and effect thinking there, right. you know, just blatantly doing things because they're providing extremely short-term... Uh, profits mm. uh, and not thinking about okay you know 10 years down the track how how is the country going to be you know mm. and, and in that cause and effect thinking really emerges at the fourth layer 
uh, that authoritarian agricultural where you have to think about the future, you know, because uh, that, well, it's it's the consequence of the rational mind kicking in the the frontal lobes, you know, uh, fully developing and our capacity to be able to moderate those urges which. Uh, come from our pre-rational self which mm-hmm. lead to us doing impulsive things you know and not thinking about the future mm. yeah. yeah we'll take a break here on Future Sense you are tuned with Steve McDonald and myself Nick Jeans through to 11 o'clock this morning thanks for joining us uh, wherever you are in the world and as you know you can tune in uh, streaming um, anytime and we have an edited version of each week's broadcast a couple of days after in two parts usually and you can get to that via futuresense.it or through your podcast platform you can also listen to the full show again uh, with music and everything else in it on the bayfm website bayfm.org a couple of hours after broadcast you're resonating right now on future sense with steve mcdonald and nick jeans we were just talking about politicians and our political systems, how we select our leaders in society, and it's true to say that our political systems are really lagging behind in many countries at the moment, and because we are going through this transition from the scientific industrial era to what's next, there's a regressive search going on, and so we're tending to be attracted to uh, older value sets being um, displayed by, by potential leaders which are leading to quite rigid leadership styles from the old authoritarian fourth layer in, in Graves' model where everything's black and white and, uh, you, you know, it, it literally dumbs down the decision-making process when you only have two choices. And that really is a, a characteristic of our political system in most mm. Western countries at the moment. You only have two choices, right? It's it's this one or that one, and often they're two bad choices and you've got to choose between which one of the bad choices you want to vote for. And somehow they, uh, there seems to be this, uh, this whole notion in this fourth layer, of course, of future reward. That's very obvious when it comes to religion, but it's, yeah. you, can, you can feel that as you're speaking. I can, you can hear that in the, in the dialogue, in the discourse of many of the politicians, that we're doing these uncomfortable things. Now, we're not doing too much because so, there's actually nothing to worry about here because it's all going to be – it's all okay. Like, just going forward, there's nothing to really worry about. There's no real strategy going forward. That's right. Things will be great again. Things, yes, things will be great again. Or in the case of some in people saying things will be greater again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, you know, if you think about how we select our leaders just in, in the corporate world, which mm. is still, which is very much old paradigm, but it's actually somewhat ahead of our political systems. If you apply to be the leader of a, a corporation, you go through quite a selection process and you've got to provide a resume with a, a you know, a history of successfully solving problems in, in, within that setting, you know, and you've got to have references and those sorts of things. And, and we just don't require these uh, qualifications of our politicians our, our political system isn't set up that way, our voting system isn't mm. set up that way and yeah. many people I'm sure turn up to vote, I mean here in Australia we have compulsory voting so everybody has to, to turn up and vote otherwise they, they get fined yeah. and I'm sure many of those people probably spend little or no time uh, sitting pondering who they should vote for you know they turn up, I mean they, we get a lot of uh, media coverage of the the national leaders of the political parties so people would be familiar with them but in terms of our local representatives many people I'm sure turn up to the polling booth and they don't even know who the local representative is of their particular party and they get a pamphlet at the front gate and look at the face and say well I kind of like yeah, that, that person looks okay you know so I'll fall in, in the party line and, and, and vote for them. And so it's a, it's a very unsophisticated process of selecting leaders. 
uh, and and of course there's a you know quite a discussion to be had about what works better a compulsory voting system or a voluntary voting system of course in america they have a voluntary voting system where you don't have to vote um, and uh, and with the dissatisfaction around Trump, of course, mm. everybody's been you know urging people to actually start voting. Those people who haven't been voting. Of course, some of those leaders that come to the forum thinking now. Uh, this morning, I was listening a little bit to the um, the CEO of Qantas, who is the highest paid CEO in Australia, with a twenty four million dollars a year pay packet. So on one hand, chosen one way. On the other hand, the perks and, and rewards for winners is very much a, a layer five, an orange layer, isn't it? So uh, they may not be particularly competent in the way that uh, that we would like them to be, so to speak. Yeah. But they may, if they are successful in whatever terminology that might be, that just does that just mean stockholder success, stock success? Uh, they are rewarded way out of the out of the uh, you know, sort of stratospheric amount. Sort of they, they the are, are given. You know, it's a good comparison though because yeah. uh, I'm not sure what our current Prime Minister's salary here is in Australia but I, th I think it's in the order of hundreds of thousands yeah, of dollars. Yeah, something like five to six hundred thousand yeah, like that. And, and so you compare that, that reward with being the CEO of Qantas, yes, yes. It, it's just, you know, off the scale, isn't it? The, the commercial version of that and so you, you then have the answer to the question, why aren't our best leaders getting attracted to politics? Yeah. You know, if, if their values are uh, modern scientific industrial values layer five and they want to be successful in, in financial terms then they're not going to go into politics and so we we therefore are attracting people with different value sets into politics mm. and right at the moment those they they are older uh, less complex value sets that, that really come from the agricultural era or even prior to that uh, and at the end of the day, our political leaders need to, or we would hope that they were able to sol solve our most challenging problems. And uh, if if we want our leaders to be solving our most challenging problems, then we need leaders that can think in the most complex ways mm. that are available. Mm. And consequently, then it's no surprise that they are not solving our problems. In fact, they are at times creating more problems. Exacerbating. Yeah. Um, on this topic, futurist Alvin Toffler, who of course is very, f uh, very famous from back then, uh, defined the new illiterate person for the 21st century as the illiterate of the 21st century will not be those who cannot read and write, but those who cannot learn, unlearn and relearn. Yeah, that, mm. that's that's a good statement. Yes. Absolutely. And, and certainly at this time, uh, speed of learning, speed of adaptation is critical. Yeah. You know, that, that is a skill yeah. uh, that, that we should be looking for in our leaders. Similarly, uh, from um, something I found from Dr. Caleb Rosado, who runs uh, Rosado Consulting for Change in Human Systems and somewhat based on Graves' work, as I understand. But he writes uh, the challenge of change. In order to address the future, people must be open to change. Yet here lies the biggest hurdle to moving into the future proactively a reactive mindset. Far too often leaders are engaged in problem solving instead of change anticipating. There are These are two different approaches to thinking about the future. The first, that is uh, problem solving, the first is by its nature emanating from a perspective oriented towards the past, toward a we have always done it this way mindset, and the latter that is change anticipating is proactive and is oriented towards the future toward a how can we do things differently yeah that's that's a, a fair consideration mm. absolutely and and of course um, you know I, I guess many of our politicians are in it for the personal rewards 
and personal success. Although obviously, if they were if they were capable and they wanted financial success, they wouldn't be in politics, most likely. No. Um, well, of course, many of them do go into politics for a, a raise in salary, perhaps, but then end up as, as uh, advisors, as uh, lobbyists, and end up with a much bigger pay packet somewhere along the line, or end up in one of the companies that's probably they've got close to in their portfolio during their time in government. Yeah, and, and a lot of it, too, I, I think, is the attraction of long-term rewards, because if you're in politics for so many years, then you end up with quite a, a healthy... Uh, pension for the rest of your life yeah. and, and all sorts of perks like well, free travel exactly right. and, and those sorts of yeah. things. Uh, someone's just written in and says smart business people are not stupid enough to get into politics. That's, that's, that's uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and someone else has written to surely to arrive at the pinnacle is a position of wakefulness a still delight, acknowledgement and gratitude for the extraordinary miracle of this vast event we call life. Well, that's a big picture and if very it, lovely. If there was a pinnacle. <laughs> if there was a, yeah, if there was a pinnacle. Yeah. <laughs> if there was a pinnacle. So, yeah, so we're faced at the moment with uh, a task ahead of us just to bring our political systems up to date yeah. with the paradigm that's dying, you know, and what that really... Oh, that's a good statement. Say that again. Yeah, <laughs> the, the task we're faced with is bringing our political systems up to date with the paradigm that's dying, yeah? And you can see the nonsense in that statement and, and that task. And so what this is pointing towards is a complete system reset. Yeah, and you know, we, I, I, this no doubt will be the case in some countries because you know different countries have different life conditions and are operating at different from different value sets yeah. at the moment. So you know, some countries are moving into a layer five scientific industrial value set and and will be seeking leaders uh, that fit that value set. But what we're going to see on a wider scale is essentially a decline in the importance of the nation state because the nation state is something that arose with the scientific industrial yeah. era. Prior to that, it didn't exist. Yeah. And prior to that, we were in the agricultural authoritarian era where we had kings and queens and kingdoms and those sorts of yeah. things and very, very different systems. And so we ought to anticipate now a decline in the importance of the nation state. It, it uh, most likely won't disappear because these older value sets don't disappear. They just uh, slide from dominance. And the emergence of a new way of organi organizing ourselves and the, all the indicators are that we are coming to the end of um, an era around about the early 2030s uh, where we'll see a, uh, a shift from um, private sector dominance, which we're in at the moment, and this is uh, from the computer um, analysis of Martin Armstrong. Martin Armstrong, yeah. Uh, and um, so in this era that we've been in of private sector dominance, what we've seen is the private sector gain dominance over our government, and, and this is what we refer to as corporate capture, where yep. even though these are supposedly public systems which are... Um, you know, managing our societies and leading us. Uh, in actual fact, they're really controlled by the private sector because the private sector funds mm. them. And if they don't do what their funders want, then uh, we we see the consequences, which we saw with with things like uh, our Prime Minister Kevin Rudd here in Australia, where the the mining industry turned on him, and that was uh, his downfall yeah, yeah. because his policies weren't what they wanted. Um, and uh, and it's you know this is a, it's such a weird thing because it's. It's so obviously and clearly the case 
that our politicians are under the thumb of uh, their corporate sponsors, and yet we deny it, we pretend it's not happening, and uh, you know, it's it's one of those taboo things that no one will talk about, and certainly the is, politicians won't talk about well, it. No, that's for sure. sure. But it is being revealed, and I think yeah. that while it's true what you're saying, I think more and more people and more and more levels or layers of society and you know, all across the board are seeing through and are seeing the emperor has no clothes more and more. Yeah. Yet to do much about it yet, yet to do much about it in the, at the ballot box because there is this regressive surge. People will tend to, in the end, put their vote back in that place where they think this old stability is. Yep. But I think there's certainly an awakening more and more of people seeing through the game to, to some degree because the desperation on the side of those who have power is so overtly, brazenly mad at times now that it's a bit hard for even, well, I would suggest, even the most asleep and stupid person. Sorry, folks out there, whoever you regard those asleep and stupid people to be. Yeah. Even some of them, those people, I think, are beginning to go like, you know, it doesn't yeah. feel right. I can't pay my rent. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The price of strawberries is through the roof this week or whatever. Like, simple life conditions yeah. are impacting on people in a way that makes them, I think, beginning to question. I'm being optimistic here. Hopefully that change is moving forward quicker than we... Well, as quick as it needs to be. Yeah. I saw an interesting paper uh, published just recently, an academic paper talking mm. about uh, the political moral sidestep phenomena. Uh, and it was particularly uh, in relation to the opioid crisis in the UK, but right. this is very applicable to what's happening here in Australia too and, and also very applicable to the, the situation with our drug laws and prohibition and those sorts of things and pill testing. Yes. Where politicians are being presented with scientific evidence, yeah. which is clear, <laughs> Uh, and yet they are choosing not to follow the scientific evidence but uh, doing what the paper called the moral sidestep and ba basically making decisions on their moral value set mm. uh, and uh, causing harm in the process because, mm. you know, I mean, the scientific evidence is this is what we need in order to reduce harm mm. in society and yet uh, the politicians are saying no, no, this is the way it's going to be yeah. and, and deferring to their own moral value set and, and I, I often wonder and it's hard to know sometimes whether those politicians and, and our Premier here in the state of New South Wales is a great example uh, Gladys Berejiklian and her decisions around the, the uh, drug laws and pill testing mm. and where we're, we're getting very very clear uh, scientific recommendations from coroner's reports yeah. from special commissions of inquiry which she set up herself yes. yeah. and then are making recommendations yeah. and then she's saying no we're not we're not going to do what they're recommending so so either one of two things is happening either the politician really is coming from uh, a, a layer four or a less complex value set where their their values are so rigid that they they just cannot change and won't change, won't even consider the change, regardless of what evidence is presented to mm. them, yes. or they're being uh, pressured by corporate, through corporate capture, where the corporate sponsors that sit beside them and, and uh, ensure that they stay in power are saying to them, you cannot make that decision because it will uh, impact our profits. Mm. And so they have to say no to the public and they have to look dumb in order to serve their masters, their corporate masters. So which of those is in play, you know, it's hard to say, but it's one or the other most likely. Yeah, I think I, I want to mention just now, talking about the uh, the drug situation and the use of uh, both pharmaceutical, legal pharmaceuticals and the rest. Uh, we've talked a little bit here on this program, and we've, uh, quite a lot about the new psychedelic revolution, for example, and the opioid crisis in America and also in this country here. And, of course, Tasmania is one of the biggest poppy growing for opium uh, for opioids in the world one of the biggest i think the second biggest in the world is tasmania anecdotally i've been told by a good friend 
who uh, knows some people in Launceston. She was with them just the other day who uh, are on opiates uh, for pain relief, but very aware of the dangers of that, looking into uh, medicinal cannabis. But they live in Launceston and they are familiar with and they do actually know some of the poppy growers down in Tasmania. And this is, uh, this is cutting edge news, if it's true, anecdotal, so, you know, who knows, but they are saying that the poppy growers in Tasmania are being told by the state government not to plant more poppies and, f- for example, to start considering replacing poppy fields with other crops. So clearly somebody knows that a change is in the wind regarding that particular issue. So that's rather good news, it would it, seem. It is good news, but it's not rocket science because rocket there science. are massive, massive court cases uh, playing out in, in the, the USA yeah. against so. these pharmaceutical companies which are, yeah. uh, are really responsible for quite consciously creating the, the opioid demand and the opioid crisis. Indeed. You've been listening to Future Sense, a podcast edited from the radio show of the same name broadcast on Bay FM in Byron Bay, Australia at bayfm.org. Future Sense is available on iTunes and SoundCloud. The future is here now. It's just not evenly distributed.